0: this is andrew smith you are listening to today in church history a place we're reminded that history is truly his story history is the story of god and the demonstration of his glory in the theater of world events i hope you enjoy listening to these episodes of today in church history their purpose is to ignite a passion for god's truth one historical event at a time Today is Tuesday, April 23, 2019, but on this exact week, Easter week, and on this exact day, Tuesday, April 23, 1538, the town council of Geneva made up of 200 members voted to depose both William Farrell and John Calvin, giving them three days to leave town under the threat of arrest. Now, what could incite such a move directed at one of the most influential reformers of the 16th century, namely John Calvin? Well, Calvin had joined William Farrell in May of 1536 to reform the city of Geneva. They were formerly Roman Catholic and had turned Protestant. But they both were banished for refusing to serve the Lord's Supper on Easter Sunday, April 21st. The reasons for this can be traced back to events unfolding before either Farrell or Calvin ever entered Geneva. Unfortunately, many have written their own opinions as to why Calvin was removed as minister. Many of these reasons are caricatures of Calvin as a person and as a minister. But did Calvin really have that bad of a temper? Was he just difficult to get along with? Was he really hopelessly stubborn? Was the town council actually justified in voting him out? A few weeks ago, we spoke on this podcast about the removal of Jonathan Edwards as the pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts. Now, there have been many faithful ministers removed from their post not because they were bad ministers or bad preachers, but because they counted the cost and took a stand for truth. They paid for it dearly in the end, and yet they should be considered heroes of the faith, not villains. Calvin's banishment from Geneva is an example of this. Now, what I'd like to do on this podcast of Today in Church History is spend a little longer than we normally do, because what I'd like to do is briefly outline ten reasons which led to Calvin's forced departure from Geneva. Now, it's important to remember that I believe these ten reasons actually justify Calvin as a minister. They actually prove that he was an effective reformer. They prove that he was a man who loved the gospel and took a stand for truth. His stance for truth is what got him banished. Not because he did anything sinful, not because he did anything wrong, not because he actually it out of turn, but because the people of Geneva simply were not ready for the biblical reforms that he was instituting. It's also important to bear in mind that he eventually returned to Geneva, but we'll have to save that part of the story for another podcast altogether. The first reason that Calvin was banished from Geneva relates to the intense political situation surrounding Geneva in the years leading up to the Reformation led by William Farrell with the assistance of John Calvin. Geneva desired freedom both religiously and politically. Basically, they took advantage of the Protestant movement to free themselves from political and religious authorities. They wanted more than anything to be a self-governing people. They had been under the thumb of the House of Savoy for far too long. They didn't care for the Prince Bishop who presided over Geneva, who belonged to the Roman Catholic Church, nor did they like submitting to the Duke of Savoy. Therefore, they made a political alliance with Bern and Fribourg, cities to their north. When the House of Savoy attacked Geneva, both Bern and Fribourg came to their defense, releasing them from the House of Savoy and their authority. However, following these events, their political alliance with Bern and Fribourg broke down. First, because Fribourg broke away, because they were committed to Roman Catholicism, and second, because eventually Geneva felt that Bern was becoming more than a brother city. They began to view Bern as another attempt to control them, another city, another authority trying to tell them what to do, they wanted to call their own shots. Though Genevans appreciated Byrne's model of Protestantism, they figured they could go about their own reforms by themselves without Byrne's help. This is when they hired William Farrell, a fiery preacher who came to Geneva and unleashed sermons denouncing popery, encouraging iconoclastic practices, removing baptismal fonts, and telling its citizens that the church festivals of the Roman church didn't have to be observed. The crowds absolutely loved Pharaoh, including a large contingency of the new government of Geneva composed of two councils, a large council and a small council. The large council housed 200 members, while the small council was made up of 25. The large council appointed most of the members of the small council so that the town was essentially ruled by a 200-plus member committee. The second reason that led to Calvin's banishment involves Calvin's own admittance of inexperience, youth, and natural shyness that made him desirous to be alone with his books and to study and write. Calvin was headed to Strasbourg when he originally fled his native France from Roman persecution. He had just written the Institutes of the Christian Religion, published when he was barely 27 years old in the year 1536. But he ended up in Geneva due to some roads being blocked because of King Francis's war, when Pharaoh, who had been in Geneva only a few months, got wind that Calvin was in town, he pleaded with Calvin to stay and help with the Reformation. Calvin insisted that he was headed to Strasbourg, not being cut out for pastoral ministry or the limelight that a public figure of the Reformation would have. Famously, however, Farrell said that God would curse his studies if he went to Strasbourg to write. Calvin viewed this threatening rebuke as if it came from God himself and decided to stay in Geneva. Now, Farrell, as I said, was a fiery figure. He had a very strong personality, virtually the polar opposite of Calvin in many respects, personality-wise. It was Calvin who was assisting Farrell, not Farrell assisting Calvin in Calvin's first stint in Geneva. Much of what transpired can be traced back to Farrell's leadership more so than Calvin. Now, the third contributing factor to Calvin being banished from Geneva is simply the fact that the citizens of Geneva viewed him with great suspicion, almost from the very beginning. In fact, when Farrell went to the town council to convince them to hire Calvin as his assistant to reform the city, they didn't seem overly impressed, even though Calvin had published the institutes and was considered the best up-and-coming young Protestant theologian of the day. The minutes of the council's meeting and approving Calvin as Farrell's assistant simply referred to him not as John Calvin, but as, and I quote, that Frenchman, end quote. Calvin was never embraced in Geneva fully, at least not until the end of his life. He was always viewed as a foreigner. Thus, he was working uphill from the beginning. He waited several months, in fact, laboring in both teaching and preaching and pastoral duties without even receiving a paycheck from the town council. Yet Calvin worked faithfully and quietly and humbly. The fourth contributing factor to Calvin's banishment from Geneva is that the town council was dependent upon Pharaoh and Calvin to institute reforms in Geneva. If they were going to be the model of what a Reformation city could look like, then they needed structure and order. Pharaoh had done a great job of stirring up the crowds before Calvin's arrival. He had convinced the town council to run off the Roman Catholic priests, who were exiled and even took over the pulpit at St. Peter's. The town swore to uphold the gospel and the word of God according to Reformation teaching. This, before Calvin ever even entered the picture. Nevertheless, this newfound autonomy of Geneva, both religious freedom from the Roman church and political freedom from the house of Savoy, bordered on chaos. The new government needed a religious order and structure to replace the Roman Catholic structure. Their faith was in Pharaoh, whose faith was in Calvin, that Calvin was the man who could provide order and structure to the citizens of Geneva regarding church life. Pharaoh wasted no time once Calvin was hired. Calvin and Pharaoh jointly drafted a confession of faith, a catechism, and a program to enact church discipline. Now, the confession affirmed the Word of God as the basis for faith and practice of both the city and the church. It affirmed that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. It even segmented the duties of church and state so that each knew their role. Additionally, it included what marked other Christians. The content of the catechism was essentially drawn from Calvin's institutes. But the program suggested for church discipline was the major controversial point. Now remember, Genevans did not want anyone telling them how to live. Not the Pope, not a Duke, not a Bishop, not anybody. Nevertheless, the town council heartily agreed to the program of church discipline that began with admonishing those living in open sin and could potentially lead to excommunication from the church. Farrell and Calvin suggested to the council that a committee made up of reputable people be appointed by the council. This committee of people, lay citizens, would work in conjunction with the ministers of Geneva in the various parishes to monitor the behavior of the citizens. The members, along with the pastors, would divide Geneva up into districts so the monitoring had definitive areas of responsibility. The town council not only voted to approve the confession and catechism, but also the program for church discipline. They even had a public appeal that censored certain activities deemed sinful so that the citizens knew in advance what to expect. This was necessary since Geneva was known for its reveling. It was known for its drunkenness, its open toleration of adultery, and even its state-sponsored prostitution, which was led by a woman whose nickname was Queen of the Brothel. The Council also had the Confession and Catechism printed and distributed, and even had both documents read publicly for several months from the various pulpits in Geneva. But it's important to observe that they left out any talk of excommunication. This was highly problematic to Pharaoh and Calvin because Pharaoh and Calvin believed that they were not seeking morality for the sake of morality. Their motives were rooted in a desire to have a pure church. That's why they enacted this program for church discipline. In other words, they believed the apostolic pattern for the New Testament church necessarily and fundamentally included church discipline. The whole Protestant movement centered upon what the gospel actually was, what the Bible said it was, and therefore what a Christian actually was and what a Christian looked like. It was a movement that identified true Christians from false ones. Pharaoh and Calvin were simply teasing out the practical implications of the Reformation for the life of the church. The town council, however, was not comfortable with excommunication. And this is where the friction between the reformers of Geneva and the politicians composed of the town council began. Now, the fifth contributing factor to Calvin's banishment from Geneva has to do with Pharaoh and Calvin being tasked with suggesting a liturgical order. They didn't ask for much to the town council, but following Farrell's lead, they desired several primary elements in the liturgy. First of all, they wanted no observance of the church festivals of the Roman church, including the observance of saints' days. Secondly, they wanted the singing of psalms in worship, Third, they wanted an emphasis on the catechizing of youth. Third, an abrogation of papal marriage laws concerning ministers. Fourth, the monthly observance of the Lord's Supper. And finally, and most importantly, the enforcement of excommunication, if necessary, to members of the church who are living in open, unrepentant sin. Now, once again, the town council tried to control the situation. They were open to the reformer's suggestions regarding the liturgy, but they wanted to make the final calls. They saw the Lord's Supper, for instance, as only necessary to be observed four times a year. Nor were they bothered by Rome's church calendar. They thought celebrating church festivals was okay. They just kept pushing back against Calvin and Farrell. They would go along with them only so far before digging their heels in and wanting to hold authority over Calvin and Farrell. The sixth contributing factor to Calvin being banished from Geneva was the real force behind the pressure that was put on the council from the authorities in Bern. Now Bern was that city that Geneva had a political alliance with. Bern was the one that encouraged Geneva's independence, but it was also Bern that began meddling in the affairs of Geneva to such a degree that Geneva no longer wanted an alliance with Bern. Nevertheless, Bern was a Protestant city. And though Bern recognized Geneva's sovereignty once their alliance ended, they continued to meddle in Geneva's affairs. The Bernese Protestants were considered major leaders in that geographic region. And the Council of Geneva tended to defer to the leaders in Bern, especially when they disagreed with the suggestions of reform that were put forth by Calvin and Farrell. This certainly contributed to the friction which eventually led to the banishment of Calvin from Geneva. There's an important seventh contributing factor to Calvin's banishment from Geneva. Pharaoh and Calvin were willing participants with the Bernese brethren. In fact, they both took part in helping ministers in both Bern and Lausanne at reform efforts. But one of the ministers who they helped turned against them. He was a man by the name of Peter Caroli. This Protestant minister in Lausanne did not possess a reputation for integrity and even possessed a concubine. Later, Caroli pledged his loyalty to the Pope, effectively becoming a turncoat. But Caroli fallaciously accused Pharaoh and Calvin of being Arians. Now, Arians were heretics who believed in part that Jesus was distinct from the Father and therefore subordinate to him in his very essence. Pharaoh and Calvin had no problem defending themselves and did so before the Brethren at Lausanne. Nevertheless, many of those in Geneva who had pledged to obey the confession and recognize the catechism and go along with the church discipline program of accountability had only done so under pressure. Friction was beginning to grow between Pharaoh and Calvin and the townspeople who felt that their liberties were being encroached upon. So they looked at this accusation of Pharaoh and Calvin as being Arians and they used it to their advantage. This leads to an eighth contributing factor that led to Calvin's banishment from Geneva. Farrell had initially quite successfully garnered the support of important families in Geneva, many of whom sat on the town council. However, an undercurrent of Genevan rebellion began to surface, which evolved into a political party. This party was called the Patriot Party. They were against the ministers, not necessarily the town council as a whole. Historically, they've been referred to as the anti-clerical party because they so strongly opposed the reforms that the ministers were inciting and encouraging the town council to approve. This party effectively placed a wedge between the ministers, Farrell and Calvin primarily, since they were the leaders, and the town council. Then they were elected to serve on the town council in the place of some of Farrell's greatest supporters. This was detrimental to the Protestant cause and ultimately led to the banishment of Calvin from Geneva. There was a ninth contributing factor to Calvin's banishment from Geneva. Once again, the Protestants in Bern were not helpful to Calvin and Farrell a synod at Lausanne took place in which they suggested that all reformers in the region should subscribe to the Protestant customs of the Bernese. Now, Geneva did not have to listen to the suggestion because they were sovereignly autonomous. But the point is they wanted to, and Bern wanted Geneva to listen to them because Bern apparently felt that too much power had been given to the ministers in Geneva, namely Calvin and Farel. Bern wanted to be the model Protestant city. They wanted to control Geneva. They wanted to control Pharaoh and Calvin. One of these Bernese customs, which appears somewhat insignificant given other factors, was the Bernese practice of using unleavened bread at the Lord's Supper. Now here's where it gets very interesting. There is not solid evidence that even suggests either Pharaoh or Calvin strongly opposed, at least in principle, the use of unleavened bread at the Lord's Supper. Nevertheless, the friction had been building. This was not an issue of leavened and unleavened bread served at the Lord's Supper, but rather one of leaven within the body of Christ. Calvin and Farrell could not properly lead as reformers if, number one, the town council wanted to have oversight of the church or punt to burn every time there was a disagreement, and number two, if the council was unwilling to excommunicate those who brought a whole bunch of leaven into the church through unrepentant lifestyles and patterns of overt public sin. And this leads to the tenth and final contributing factor to Calvin's banishment from Geneva. Things came to a head when one of Farrell and Calvin's colleagues, a fellow minister in Geneva, was arrested. Now, this minister had openly preached against the decisions of the council. The people of the city did not like this. They called for his drowning, and this poor man, he was an old man, almost blind, was incarcerated. He was imprisoned and removed, defrocked, as a minister in Geneva. Now, Calvin and Pharaoh were furious, so furious, that it's reported Calvin himself began preaching openly against the council, referring to the town council as the devil's council. So, Pharaoh and Calvin made the joint decision on Easter Sunday, April 21st, that after preaching their sermons that morning, they would refuse to serve the Lord's Supper to a church full of sinners unwilling to repent, including unrepenters on the town council. They wanted the church pure, and since no excommunication was taking place, Calvin and Farrell decided they could not in good conscience serve the Lord's Supper, for that would be indirectly endorsing open sin. Evidence suggests the town council saw it coming. The necessary supplies could not be found anywhere, and once the sermons were over, Calvin and Farrell, both preaching at different churches within the city, explained that no Lord's Supper would be observed on that Easter morning people were so angry they began drawing their swords. They drowned out the minister's voices as they were explaining why they weren't serving the Lord's Supper, and both Calvin and Farrell had to have friends escort them home out of fear for their lives. That evening, Calvin returned to the pulpit to preach in spite of the aggressive spirit of the people. People openly made threats toward the lives of both Calvin and Farrell. The situation had reached a boiling point, so after meeting three times, once after Sunday morning sermons, again on Monday, and then again once on Tuesday, the town council voted to give Calvin and Farrell three days to leave the city or be arrested. The Reformation, as it appears, was over, at least for the time being. Now, as I said, Calvin ended up going back to Geneva three years later, but this was a major setback to him personally, as well as to the Reformation. Geneva was pressured to return to Roman Catholicism in the absence of Calvin, at which point Calvin came to the rescue before returning to Geneva to pastor again. Calvin lost one of his closest friends and traveling companions who left the Reformation efforts to become a bishop back in the Roman Catholic Church. Calvin and Farrell were both almost swept away in a flood during a torrential rainstorm as they traveled on horseback to Basel after leaving Bern, where the Protestant brethren were of no encouragement or help. We'll save those details for another podcast. But it's important to note that a mediator, namely Heinrich Bullinger, was dispatched from Zurich upon meeting with Calvin and Farrell. He was dispatched back to Geneva in order to negotiate with the town council. Now here's what the negotiation terms consisted of. Farrell and Calvin sent him to report to the town council that they would agree to put back in place the baptismal fonts they would allow the people to observe church festivals so long as church discipline and excommunication were practiced. Now the town council voted on May 26 of 1538 that the banishment was final. Calvin and Farrell would not be returning, or at least that's what they thought. The lesson to take from the banishment of John Calvin from Geneva as its minister is that standing for truth comes with great cost. Calvin was not a perfect man. Nobody suggests that he was. But he is, I think, given unfair treatment often by historians. Calvin was not, the best I can tell, after power or fame or personal glory. Calvin's great crime, if there was any, was simply wanting to follow the simple teachings of the New Testament when it came to decisions the pastors make, as well as the apostolic insistence on church purity. Without church discipline being practiced, how does the church know who a Christian is and is not? Without church discipline being practiced, how does the church remain pure? How does she maintain her testimony in the community? In what sense can she become salt and light? What sort of reproach did this bring on the church to allow and tolerate open, unrepentant sin? Calvin simply believed in the authority of the Bible. The Bible has laws, the Bible has standards, the Bible has commands and practices. Calvin believed also in the sufficiency of Scripture, which means he affirmed that the Bible provides enough information to structure the doctrine and practice of the church without the state interfering. Calvin is not the only one vilified for attempting to follow Scripture. You will be too, at least at some point, by somebody, perhaps even another professing Christian, if you are faithful to the Scriptures. The question is, will you stay faithful to Scripture in that moment, no matter the cost? History is truly his story. It's the story of God and the demonstration of His glory in the theater of world events. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Today in Church History. Don't forget to check my website out, www.heartoflame.org, later in the week for a series of articles that elaborates on the events outlined in today's podcast. Also, feel free to follow me on Twitter or Facebook for updates on new articles and podcasts. Also, do me a favor and subscribe to this podcast via Apple iTunes simply by searching for Today in Church History. Also, feel free to leave a review if you have time, which helps with greater exposure of this podcast. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your host, Andrew Smith.